Well, good morning, Overlake. It is wonderful to be with you on this beautiful, snowy, winter wonderland kind of a day. Uh, I want to say welcome. My name is Mike. I'm one of the pastors here and uh, very excited about launching into our new series called Glorious Mess. And it also comes with a, uh, we're doing life groups uh, around this idea. We've uh, got a book out. I'm very, very excited about that. And uh, it's just it really kind of a fun, fun season for me as pastor for Overlake. Uh, here's the deal though. Glorious Mess, it is a walkthrough of the book of Jonah. And uh, as a pastor, I just want you to know, everywhere I go, people are like, pastor, I need more Jonah. I've got to have more Jonah. I've got a fever and there's only one cure, Jonah. <laughs> no, not at all. Um, it's been written off. And uh, if you Google Jonah today, what you'll find are children's videos and Jonah Hill, the actor. So um, here's what you need to know, that this series is not going to be going after sort of scientific facts about how a grown man can utilize oxygen from giant gills. Uh, It's not going to be one of those bizarre but true tales about how a sperm whale was caught off the coast of Norway, opened up, revealing a family of four living comfortably inside with their twin hairless cats. That's not it, right? Because the whole thing has as its premise simply this, that... To an infinite God, creating a miracle is no big deal. To almighty God, commanding a fish and sustaining life are a no-brainer. In fact, it is more difficult for me to brew a pot of coffee than it is for almighty God to perform a miracle. And, and so that's our starting place. No, the reason why we chose Jonah, same reason why the book's called Glorious Mess, simply this, that nobody's messier than Jonah. I mean, Jonah is a mess at the beginning of the book. When he hears God's call, he runs from God into a mess of his own making, dead ends in messiness. Then he obeys God for like 20 minutes. And then he's a mess at the end of the book. I find an incredible amount of hope and freedom in Jonah's story. Because so often in Christendom, in church world, what we do is we coach our testimonies to sound like this. Once I was blind, and now I can see. Once I was this, bad, baddie, bad, bad, and now I'm this, good, good, goody, good, you know. And, and I think there's some inauthenticity there. It, it seems to me much more true to form. To say, you know, once I was a mess 57 ways, and then I met Jesus, and now I'm a mess 34 ways, but God's glory is shining throughout. So that's what we want to go after. That's what we're going to unpack. That's why the title, Glorious Mess, if you're filling in the blanks, go ahead and grab your notes. If you're filling in the blanks, the first one's really, really simple. And it's the premise of this whole shebang. It says, a glorious mess, here's God's call. Here's God's call, and God is calling. He's calling each and every one of us, wherever we are in our faith journey, wherever we are in life, God is calling and prompting and nudging. I'll start with a story. When I was in third grade, my dad took me and a buddy named Avery fishing. And he took us down. Now, my dad's a great fisherman, and I'm not so much. And so we got there to the river. My dad puts the worm on the hook, and he gets me all set up. And so I'm ready to cast. And, and I rear back because I'm imagining that the moment the hook hits the water, the fish begin to strike like traitors at an IPO, landing me this frontiersman-type glory and my own bass boat fishing show. So I've got this in my mind. I rear back to cast, and I 
struggle. Now, the hook never clears my shoulder. So I pull again, and it's stuck. So a third time, I pull as hard as I can, nothing doing. I turn around to see what the hook's caught on. It was my buddy, Avery. Yeah, it was my first cast, and I landed a 60-pounder. Um, it, it had caught the tip of his forefinger. And so each time I pulled, he was going like this in the air, like a, a parody of a preacher. And I, he didn't scream. I screamed when I saw it. And my dad comes running over and he pulls the hook out, applies a band-aid, calming words, avoids litigation. Uh, the point of this story, it, it, we, we quit. Like the, the, the fishing trip was over. We go home. Nobody had caught anything. But on that day, I had become a fisher of men. Taking Jesus literally, right? So uh, here's actually, we know it's a random story, it's goofy, but I wonder if God is seeking to get our attention through all kinds of stories. Through the I just speared my fishing buddy story and the I'm just driving to Starbucks story, just another day at the office story, I'm just tucking my kids into bed story. I wonder if life itself is not the medium through which God is calling. God is prompting, God is nudging us and inviting us into his glory. So I wonder what would change with the understanding that God has a call on each and every one of our lives. That his call emerges whenever, wherever, even in your here, even in your now, even in the midst of your mess. See, I want to begin with Jonah. Chapter 1, verse 1. We already heard it this morning. Simply says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. It starts with God's call. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against us, uh, against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now we see in this verse that God spoke to Jonah, called him to do something. It was to go to that great city of Nineveh. Now, it was an evil city, obviously, but God calls it great. God knows it can be great. God hopes and plans and has great dreams for Nineveh. And he's inviting Jonah into his call. We don't know a lot about Jonah. There's not an introductory, you know, uh, paragraph or, or any. That just starts with the call of God on Jonah's life. In fact, the only other thing we know about Jonah comes from 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. It says, spoken through his servant, God's servant, Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet from Gath-Hefer. Okay, so we see that Jonah is God's servant, right? A definition of servant is one who's ready to do whatever his master asks of him. And, and we don't use this language very much, master and servant. I think it's appropriate. Those words have been kind of soiled throughout history, and, and I understand that. Uh, the closest we get today is like Star Wars universe, right? Yes, Master Yoda. Uh, that's, that's where we are with it. But I wonder if we recontextualize the word just in the context of this conversation. What if master meant the one who loves you even more than you love yourself? What if master meant the one who was inviting you into your very best future? 
What if master meant the one who, who had great plans for your future, great plans for the kingdom of God, great plans for everyone involved, and he was inviting you into the whole thing, a life that impacts the here and now, impacts eternity, the whole enchilada. Hey, that would change the way we look at this idea of master. And there are many of you right now who live your life in this way. That already, this is how you view God, and, and this is the special relationship you have. You're a servant, and you can't wait to hear his call in your life. And if this isn't you, you probably have a friend or two who this is. They're the ones with the best stories. Right? And you've probably heard them sound something like this. It was almost midnight, and I felt God prompting me to go to McDonald's and ask the guy behind the counter if he'd given up on his dreams. So I did, and he says yes and starts to cry, and I lead him to Jesus Christ right there, and he quits drugs, and I get him into college, and he becomes the prime minister of Luxembourg. <laughs> Invented the cheese tax, the most famous legislation on the planet, and, and, and obviously this is a fictional story, uh, but you've heard them, or some like them, or maybe you haven't, so just pretend. Uh, and you hear a story like that, and you go, wow, if only God would call me like that. If only he would prompt me like that or nudge me like that, the premise is he is. My friend Tracy lives her life like this, and one day she was driving home from work. She felt God prompting her to go to Ruby's Diner. And it wasn't too far off of her route home, and so she thought, okay, you know, God, I, I, I sent you, prompting me to go to Ruby's, and I like their milkshakes, so sure, I'll go. And so she goes to Ruby's, and as she's going in toward the counter... She sees an elderly woman sitting by herself. And so as she passes her, she feels God prompt her, have a conversation with that woman. But, you know, that feels kind of awkward. It feels a little weird. She wrestled with God a few moments, and, but really felt like God would say, no, no, just talk to her. So Tracy walked over and said, excuse me, I, I know this is going to sound bizarre. But I just wanted you to know, I feel like God's prompting me just to say hello to you and introduce myself. I'm Tracy. And the woman looked up at her, and she began to get emotional. And she said, you don't know this, but I'm, I've just lost my husband not too long ago. He was the one who took care of our finances and all the logistics in our life. And, and I'm feeling overwhelmed, but more than anything else, I'm feeling lonely. And not five minutes ago, I was praying to God for someone to talk to. As God prompting. God nudging, God leading. I, I, I want to tell you that I tend to need God to hit me over the head or at least give me a phone call. Uh, and, and this is a story that happened uh, there, uh, back in the day. We used to do this pastoral care phone. And um, this was the, the pastors would have a phone so that anyone who called into the church at any time, any day, would get a live pastor to pray with or connect with or whatever. And so, um, so I had this phone. And at 3 o'clock in the morning, just before 3, I get a phone call on it. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm not feeling very pastoral before 3 a.m. Uh, I'm not even sure God's working uh, that early in the morning. And so, um, so this gal's on the phone, and she's telling me the story. Her ex-husband is in a coma in the hospital. The doctors don't think he's going to last very long. She doesn't know if he's ever received Christ. Would I come down to the hospital and preach Jesus to him? Now again, I, I'm, I'm not in my best pastoral moment in this, in this situation, so I ask her really helpful questions like, 
uh, let me understand this. He's not your husband. He's your ex-husband. Like, how does that work? And, and he's in a coma. And he's been in a coma for how long? And you think he's going to, like, I have to come now. And it's, it, th- those were not my best pastoral moments right there. But she convinced me that this was, there was an urgency here. And I sensed that maybe God could be in this. And so I go down to the hospital. It was just as she had said. There he was lying there. And, and so I begin to read some scripture to him and talk about Jesus. And I talked about how it's not the good things that we do, it's about the good thing that Jesus has done. I talk about how all of us have sinned, we've all missed the mark, and Jesus Christ, on the cross of Calvary, he took the punishment for our sin. And that if we trust him, that our sin can be removed from us, we receive his righteousness. He rose again from the dead, proving that he was who he said he was, the son of God, and we can enter into eternity with him in heaven forever. And I said all these things, he was absolutely comatose the whole time. It felt just like youth ministry. (laughs) And at the end of that, uh, that brief time together, I I took his hand and I said, now I'm going to pray on your behalf. And if you want to join me in this prayer, if you want to trust Jesus, go ahead and you can squeeze my hand or you can blink your eye or just however you can affirm this prayer, you affirm it and you receive it. And instantly my hand was in a vice grip. And he was moaning and he was nodding his head, yes. And there were tears coming down his face. And I have never been more certain of a humble response to the gospel than that moment. And so I prayed with him and then I told him, hey, you can be sure of a couple of things. That all of your sins are forgiven. That Jesus loves you and has cleansed you. And whenever your time on this earth is over, you can be assured you'll be welcomed into heaven. And meanwhile, his ex-wife is just jumping up and down and she's laughing and she's crying and she's singing. And it was, it was a little creepy. Uh, And so, so I, 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 you know, excuse myself. I tell her, Hey, give me a phone call. Let me know how things, uh, you know, progress. I go home about 30 minutes later, I'm getting into bed and I get a phone call from her and she wanted to thank me. Thanks pastor. Thanks for coming down. Thanks for praying with him. It just was so miraculous. And then she said, I want you to know that he just passed away into a joy-filled eternity. And I hear that, and, and, and I, oh, I, I could have so easily missed that. I could have so easily missed out on that adventure had I just, you know, maybe put her off, prayed for her on the phone, and then gone back to sleep. So you understand that, that there's this prompting and this calling, and, and if we say no, we, we might never know what we said no to. We might never know the adventure that God had planned for us. And this is not a, it's not a guarantee that every time you say yes to God, every time you do what he's prompting you to do, that amazing things are going to happen. It doesn't always turn out like that. In fact, I was talking to my buddy John this week. He was at the gym. They had just finished a workout, and he notices off in the corner there was a gal, and she didn't seem to be doing well. She was kind of down you know, on one knee, and she was holding her head. And so he walked over, and he said, excuse me, are you doing okay? And she said, I'm ah, really not. That workout rocked me. It was CrossFit, which as you know, I have a hate-hate relationship with CrossFit. And, and, and she, oh no, it was really hard. And she's holding her head. She, I got a headache and my ears excruciating. And, and so John, he's a caring guy. He just said, well, can I pray for you? And she looked up at him. She goes, no, but you can help me up. <laughs> uh, okay, I said, you know, just because it doesn't end like a Norman Rockwell painting doesn't mean that God wasn't in it. 
Right? And there's this idea that God does have a call on us, that he's calling often, because you're unique, your life circumstance is unique, the call of God on your life is going to be unique. But I want to tell you what the first step is in this whole process. The first step to hearing God's call is to decide how you're going to respond. We call this preemptive obedience. You decide ahead of time. If you wait till you hear God's call before you decide if you're going to do it or not, that's kind of cheating. In fact, I want to give you something. You can write this down on the margin somewhere. Take this home with you. It's just the warning that the words, no, Lord, are a contradiction in terms. Right? No, Lord, is a contradiction. You can't say no if he's Lord. You can't say Lord if you say no. It's a contradiction in terms. So we can't hedge our bets. We've got to go into this thing just ready to say yes. Here's an example from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8. This is how Isaiah responds. It says, Then I heard of the, the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And I said, Here am I. Send me. Notice that Isaiah's response was immediate. He had decided ahead of time, preemptive obedience. He says, here I am, send me. He he, he was willing, whatever it is that God was calling him to, he was up for it. He was game. That's what he wanted. He did not ask, Lord, will this be convenient for me? Is there a training course? Will it come with health benefits? Can you guarantee my safety? What are the girls there like? Do I have to wear pants? Isn't there an espresso stand? Should I bring a coffee maker just in case? Will it be in Europe? Should I bring an adapter? None of that. He just said, yes, here am I. Send me. His decision was made ahead of time. Now, how about you? How are you in this conversation? Are you willing? Are you available? Or are you kind of the kind of person who hedges their bets a little bit? You keep an excuse or two in your pocket just in case a call comes. It's not that exciting sounding to you. Now, I'll just tell you, as a pastor over the years, I've heard several excuses. You've heard these excuses. Maybe you've used them. I know I have at one point or another. The first, if you're filling in the blanks, is the excuse, I'm too young. I'm too young. The call of God, it can't be for me. I'll jump in and follow his call when I'm older, when I've learned a few things, when I'm out of my prolonged adolescent phase, then I'll follow God. It's an excuse that gets used. But the Bible makes it clear that God's not concerned with how old you are, that he will supply you with all that you need if you're willing to follow him right here and right now, in spite of resources you may or may not have, in spite of skills you may or may not have. God calls children to phenomenal things every day, right? Even the Bible says, and a child shall lead them. We recognize this is a reality. It was a child in the Gospels that took a risk and offered his lunch to Jesus. And Jesus took his lunch and he blessed it and he started breaking it and he passed it out. And the multitude was fed and there were leftovers. David was a teenager when he conquered Goliath. Joan of Arc was a teenager when she led her armies and they routed the English out of France. Thomas Jefferson was in elementary school when he penned the Declaration of Independence. I'm just kidding. That's not true. That would have been a cool point, but it's a lie. Now, God can use you now to make a difference. 
Here's what the scripture says regarding the prophet Jeremiah. It says, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to. Say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said to me, now I have put my words in your mouth. See, notice that God believes in Jeremiah. That, that God is present with Jeremiah, that God promises to rescue and to provide for Jeremiah, and that God downloads from an external hard drive what Jeremiah's resource needs to be so that he can say what God's calling him to say. Some of you are young. Maybe you're, um, you're a student, you're a young student right now. Some of you are young and you're young in, in some relationship. Maybe you're engaged. Maybe you're newly married. You're a young wife or young husband. You're a young businessman. You're a young parent. You don't know how to parent. You look, oh, I'm just so young. Here's the reality. Right here and right now, God is calling you. The scripture says, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Instead, decide right now that you're going to say yes to God's call. The, the next excuse that comes is sort of the opposite end of the spectrum. Not I'm too young, but I'm too old. Right? I used to be a weapon in God's arsenal, but I put in my time. Now I'm uncool. I'm confused by technology. I don't watch Glee. How could I make a difference in the world? And when I suspect this is a posture from someone I'm talking to, basically I just go nuts. Because it is absolutely true, the kindest grace givers, the very best surrogate moms and dads and grandmothers and grandfathers, the very best children's ministers and volunteers, the world's greatest huggers are all in their beautiful golden years. I call these the wisdom years. Mentor me for crying out loud. I love your wisdom. I want to learn from you. At Overlake, we have a dear saint in our midst. His name's Mel. And I love Mel's involvement in my life. He's like a spiritual father to me. We were just meeting together this last Monday. Every single week, Mel meets me before services and he prays over me, prays over you. Just this incredible saint in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know how old Mel is, but the movie Jurassic Park brought back memories. (laughs) He has an autographed Bible. He remembers when rainbows only came in black and white. No? All right. The point that I'm trying to make is that there is no expiration date in the kingdom of God. The story in the scriptures of Daniel. And Daniel is thrown in a pit of lions... Because he continues to honor God, the Father, and he is a threat to the godless, godless uh, kingdom of the day. What you don't typically hear about is the fact that Daniel was in his 80s when that story took place. Now, I would love to see that picture painted of every faithful believer in their wisdom years 
so committed to following the call of God on their lives that they're actually a threat to those who are godless. That they just, they can't see that God's call is right in the midst. So I, I want to tell you, I know some of you are old. Some of you you're old, you're old businessmen, women, and, and you're kind of, you're moving into retirement years. When it comes to career, you're thinking, hey, this is fading out. You're wondering what kind of influence you can have in your relationships, in the generations that are following you. Here's what I want to encourage you with. You're not too old. You're not too old to hear God's call. You're not too old to say yes to his call and to make a dynamic difference in the world because you're walking with Jesus. The next excuse that comes up, it hits everybody at just any time in life. It's just the excuse, I'm too busy. Pace is too crazy. There's too much going on. It doesn't matter where you are in life stage. It doesn't matter where socioeconomically. It's just a crazy world we live in. Busyness pervades. And the last fill-in is I'm too comfortable. I like my current circumstances too much. I'm enjoying myself. Can you please pass the cheese dip? Okay. Now, people don't really say that. Nobody likes to admit this to ourselves, that we like our comfort, we like our convenience. That just sounds icky and uncomfortable. But that's really at the foundation of all of our excuses. I was talking to a guy in between services, and he was sharing with me that he really does sense God's nudging and God's prompting so often, but he realized that he had been saying no to God. He sensed his prompting, sensed his leading, but he would just shut it down because it felt uncomfortable. See, by definition, being called out of our comfort zone will be uncomfortable. And we don't like that. We don't like that. We don't like the idea that God and his call might be disruptive for our plans. And I just want to say they will be. I want to be honest with you. I want to love you enough to tell you the truth. God's call will disrupt our best laid plans. For those of you who know me, you know that if I could just write out the ticket for my life, I would be living in a place with warm weather and warm waves and white sand beach, and I would be there 12 months a year. And instead, God has brought me here (laughs) to a place where my skin is no longer tan. It is lily white, but my teeth have become tan. Thank you, Starbucks. <laughs> this is God's backyard. We know he loves it because he waters it so well. I feel like we live in the, in the produce section of the grocery store under the lettuce mister. Yes, God's call will be disruptive. I found this quote. It's not from the Bible. It says, for I know the plans I have for me, declares myself. Plans that are mostly petty, entertainment focused, and primarily self-concerned. And so yes, this divine disruption, it will turn our lives upside down. Our best laid plans will be completely undone, especially if we haven't submitted our plans to them in the first place. And so you look at Isaiah and you look at Jeremiah, you go, oh yeah, their plans were disrupted. You look at Jonah, he feared they would be. But when it comes to the scripture, perhaps no one had their plans more disrupted than Mary. Little teenage Mary. And and I want you to kind of get your mind around her. You might picture a, a neighbor kid 
someone in their early mid-teens, maybe a nephew or a niece rather, or a, or a cousin or a, a daughter. This is a, somebody that you know, maybe a, a young girl in our youth group here. And she's a good girl, Mary is. No discernible halo, but she's good. She loves God. And then the angel shows up and informs her that she's pregnant. This is the world's holiest EPT test. And, and Mary, immediately, you would have to realize, is very concerned. Because she knew the cultural reality, the law that was in place, was that if you were pregnant out of wedlock, you, you could be stoned. And not in a way that Bob Marley would have appreciated this was very frightening and it was very fearful. And, and then the angel goes on and says that, that she's pregnant by divine intervention. And that this child is going to be the savior of the world. Can you imagine how she tried to communicate that to her parents? Can you imagine the conversation she had with the man that she was engaged to be married to, Joseph? Can you imagine? He's thinking, are, are you just breaking up with me? Because I, I think it'd be better if you just said, it's not you, it's me. Like, that would have that been fine. Here's what I want you to, to do. When you read the scripture, I don't want you to, to remove it so far that you place all the characters in its pages into some kind of an animated Disney film where every twist and turn is just a zippity-doo-dah-day. Because you, you drain the scripture then of its power. And it's majesty. You, you drain Mary. The reason why Mary is a hero of faith is not because it was painless. It was incredibly disruptive. The reason why she's a hero is because she said yes anyway. And you can imagine that when Mary first held her baby against the chill of a stable night, she cried out, God, thank you for this miraculous disruption. You can imagine that the first time she saw Jesus and he turned water into wine, she looked to the heavens and praised, God, thank you. Thank you for this miraculous disruption. You can imagine when she saw her son bloodied and nailed ruthlessly to a cross, she wept to God, God, why this horrible disruption? And then when she saw Jesus resurrected and made whole and new, shining with the glory of God, you could imagine she cried out, God, thank you, thank you, thank you for this disruption. See, that's why she's a hero of faith. She had decided ahead of time to say yes. She had defined herself and her identity really clearly that she was the Lord's servant. And so look at her response to the angel. Luke 1.38, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you've said. Then the angel left her. See, she said yes. She, simply and humbly, she said yes. She didn't know where it was going to go. She didn't know all of the turns in the road. She knew who she was. She was the Lord's servant. And so she said yes to his call. Well, that's a challenge before us. And so if you're filling in the blanks, the last one's very simple, that a glorious mess hears God's call and submits and says yes and obeys. 
And of course, in Scripture, friends, our model of submission is Jesus Christ himself. Because there were times, and especially at the end of his earthly ministry, where the road that he was to walk was a difficult road. And it was difficult. It wouldn't have been what he would have wanted. And yet he submitted to the call. And the scripture tells us in Matthew 26, 42, he went away and prayed a second time, my father, may your will be done. Not my will, but may your will be done. He submitted And that's the most powerful prayer you and I will ever pray. It's a complete and total surrender to the one who knows us best, loves us most, invites us into our deep glory and and, and the glory of God. And if you look at the scripture, you see Mary's there, Jesus is there, Isaiah's there, Jeremiah's there, but so often the company that we're in is the company of Jonah. And so I just want to encourage you today and this is what we're going to be talking about in our small groups. This is what we're, the book keeps going after. What does it take for us to hear God's call? It takes quiet. It takes intentionality. It takes pursuing God, seeking the Lord. But it starts with preemptive obedience. God, when I hear your call, I'll say yes. When I, when I understand what you're prompting me to do, I'll do it. And so I want to close our time together in prayer. And I would invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And let's spend just a moment imagining what this could be like. Imagine if each and every one of us heard from God this week. Imagine if it really was priority for us to listen to God and be ready to do exactly what he says Imagine the adventure that lies before us, the victory, God's glory in and despite and through our messiness. Can you imagine what it is that God's calling you to this year? Can you imagine what it is that that God's prompting you to, to serve this month? Can you imagine who it is that God's prompting you to connect with this week. And Jesus, what we want you to do is guide our imaginations right now. We want you to speak clearly into our context and in the circumstances of our lives. We don't want to offer you excuses, but instead we want to offer you our obedience. And so Jesus, we do pray that you would show us how we might pursue you, how we might get quiet before you, listen for your prompting and your leading. And then, Lord, we ask that you would find us courageous and faithful to saying yes to whatever it is you're calling us to. We love you, and we are excited about the journey that you have ahead of us. We want to walk in step with you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.